everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, he is the man who played Donnie Rollins in the NBC original series Las Vegas, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I, w- I was doing fine. <laughs> I was. Right uh, until the- I mentioned Donnie Rollins, right? Donnie Rollins. It was interesting. Uh, I don't know how many credits I have on uh, IMDb, maybe three, 4,000. I don't know. But when I arrived on the set of Las Vegas, in Las Vegas, playing Donnie Rollins, the AD, uh, the assistant director, said... Uh, Man, it's really cool when guys like you have been extras their entire life get like a speaking part. Oh, and and, and I said, well, I, I really haven't been an extra my entire life. He says, no, no, you know what I mean. I mean, the parts you play, you know, you, you never kind of get a line. You're in the background. These big, tall, goofy guys, bald guys in the background. It's really wonderful to see that, you know, eventually in your career you get to – I go, <laughs> every, every time this guy saw me, you know, he, he mentioned, uh, oh, it's such a thrill to see a journeyman finally getting to step up into the plate. And, and it was a real lesson in, in patience and, and humility <laughs> and, and in homicide. Well, <laughs> to be fair, Stephen, I do think that that was the apex of your career. So well, I, think he, he I, I did to... get, you know, I did get to dress up like Sonny and Cher in that. <laughs> I did have I did have the long wig and I got married in Vegas and it and I did hey you know what this you will appreciate because you are a film guy I did have several scenes with James Caan nice right nice so it's one in the morning and I'm sitting in the uh, bus with James Caan and we're getting ready to go to the set we're doing a night shoot and I said excuse me Mr Caan I said. I don't get that many opportunities of sitting with James Caan. I have to do the James Caan moment that I love the most. Uh And he he looked at me with this, like, I just hate my life right now kind of look. He's (laughs) saying, like, why do these people come up to me all the time? And he goes, all right, what is it? What is it? Assuming I was going to say Godfather or something like that. I said, when you were in Michael Mann's Thief, when you walk through the house at the end holding that gun, going through every room of the house with that gun, that was the coolest moment I think I ever remember in, in so many movies. That was cool. And for me, that is my James Conn moment. And his face lit up with this huge smile. And he said, yeah, that was cool, wasn't it? <laughs> so I felt really great. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So at awesome. least you know, it wasn't a completely bad experience. Yeah, no, and I didn't bring up Godfather, one of the typical things that probably people always say to him. Right, right, right. You know, well, Stephen, uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about the crappy weather we've been having here in New England. <laughs> uh, we just had a couple of big snowstorms, and I was finally like, oh, man, we're f- we had like five days of continuous rain and snow last yeah. week, and I was finally like, oh, maybe we're out of the woods, but uh, nope, the forecast for tonight is wintry mix. So it looks like, uh, you know... Punxsutawney so, Phil, I'm really sad that he saw a shadow. So I year. guess in Boston, you guys are like the Eskimos, and you have like 24 different words for snow. 
Something I like, like this. That. I like this wintry mix thing. Yes, definitely. Just, yeah. Not to make you feel bad in any way at all, but here in Los Angeles, now I am looking out my window, and it is only seven some odd in the morning, but I have a blue sky. I have uh, about 60 degree temperature, and uh, our daffodils are blooming in the backyard. We have flowers. Oh, that's oh, nice. David. Just rub it in. You know, but, but uh, I, I, I want to bring up because I guess in a sort of twisted, tortured, logic sort of way, my podcast today, my story today does have to do with changing of a variety of seasons. And, and I want to go back in that time. I guess it was 1976 is where we left off with Beth and I were in Illinois. And at this particular time, I was... I was sitting in the bedroom half of that Illinois apartment, and I was feeling like it was time to pull out that big white family Bible again. And Wait, no, so no, Stephen, before, we, before you continue, we should say that uh, if people want to get the maximum enjoyment from this episode, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, do they, yeah. Uh, how do they catch up? Well, I think, yes, if they want to get maximum enjoyment, <laughs> if they want to get the maximum enjoyment, they should... Uh, Go back because this is sequential from the last two stories for sure, and kind of even more. You should go back to episode 17, which is the uncertainty principle, uh, 18, which is without a handle, and now this particular story, which I'd like to call uh, the season of misdirection. And, you, and you'll be able to kind of follow sequentially what's going on. But um, as I was saying, before I was so timely <laughs> interrupted, <laughs> and rightfully so, rightfully so. If you recall, my, my apartment in Illinois was kind of in two halves. So I was sitting in the bedroom half of my Illinois apartment, and I was feeling like it was time to pull out the big white family Bible again, not out of zeal to get in touch with the spiritual side of my life, but outside. The icicles were melting, the land was thawing, and it was time to prop open the bedroom window again. Winter was finally ending. Hooray! Whoever conceived of the idea that hell was hot had never been to Illinois in January. The one big plus of weeks of sub-zero temperatures were that it effectively managed to freeze the sheep and cow dung that apparently was being stored at my end of the campus. I survived the long, dark months like a bear. I built up a layer of protective fat from a diet of rolling rock beer and something called Ireland's Steak and Biscuits. Ireland's Steak and Biscuits took all the trans fats you could find in butter and combined them with a slice of salty meat and rolled them up into a tasty mouthful of coronary heart disease. And you could order them by the dozen. And I did. But now the snow was melting. And I occasionally heard the frantic footsteps of the ghost of Green Street in the attic above me. So I knew the mama raccoon had survived the winter. And then I saw footprints in the snow on our balcony of mama and baby raccoon. And just that alone made me feel unbearably happy. The first semester was over. I had developed the reputation of being one of the brightest lights on the Cranert stage. Don't ask me how. And, and I'm not talking myself down. But objectively, right now, my body of work consisted of two main achievements. One, I played an old man who talked with a phony British accent going on for 20 minutes at a time about Bertrand Russell and the theorem of the limiting curve. 
I talk the audience into a sort of numbness you get on a long-distance subway ride where you doze off and then you wake up and you realize you're still not there. My second effort was even more remarkable. I had lost my costume while jumping through the front of a giant papier-mâché cassava melon, and I delivered a rambling stream-of-consciousness monologue in my jockey shorts. My career at the Cranert made me remember the line from King Lear, who is it that can say, this is the worst? <laughs> yeah, that was Shakespeare's way of saying, when it comes to bad, there is no bottom. Beth kept writing notes in her spiral, but never endeavored to turn them into a play yet. She was a Taurus, as she reminded me frequently, and Tauruses move slowly. We both got to act off campus in a production of Story Theater, and it was done in an old train station aptly named the Station Theater. And even though the station was no longer used for trains anymore, the tracks next to the Station Theater were still very much in use. And it was not uncommon to have a play interrupted by a mile-long cattle train. And this is how it would happen. You'd be in the theater, and you would hear it at a distance, kind of a low rumbling that would make your rectum vibrate. And then the whole theater would start to shake. And then the whistle would blow, and you could see the actors getting that look of terror in their eyes and speed their performances up, knowing they had to get to a good stopping place before the train got too close and the entire production had to go into hiatus for about five minutes or until the train passed. One of the best train-related theatrical moments I ever saw was the Station Theater's production of Godspell. The actors were getting close to the end of the play when you could feel those first vibrations of the coming train. And then a new sense of urgency descended mid-sing upon the cast during the final number. The cast was quickly carrying Jesus around the stage on their shoulders as the rumbling came closer and closer. And then a little boy in the audience said in a loud voice, Mama, are they going to put Jesus on the train? School-wise, I was taking a class Hobb had actually invented. Yeah, it was called visualization. If it accomplished nothing else, it made you aware of the seemingly infinite variety of ways there are to waste time. I was also taking modern dance with the live and lovely Blake Atherton, along with every other straight guy in the drama department. All of the guys would line up in the front row in their black tights and t-shirts, and yes, there was some drooling involved. We were developing strong preferences for the various leotards Blake wore. I liked the royal blue. It suited her, with her short, reddish, blonde hair. Others preferred a dark leotard with the light pastel tight. Others went for the leopard skin pattern, which I thought was just way too obvious. It became the subject of conversation in the hallways. Vic Patagrosi would come up to me and whisper out of the side of his mouth like we were doing some kind of drug deal. Blue. Tubbo. She's wearing blue today. And I'd say, yeah, I know. Richter already told me. And we would exchange a look that went beyond longing and then go about our day. I know on one hand it seems disgustingly male and awful, but on the other hand I think it bears testimony to how far we've really come since the Ice Age. I mean, no one was killed, and Blake hadn't been dragged off by the hair to a cave. That's progress. It's amazing how quickly Beth and I adapted to this new routine of what seemed to be basically meaningless endeavors. 
We acted on one foot in scene study class. We pretended to teach our own classes of freshman students. We played pinball. We drank beer. I became introduced to something called hashish and started smoking it regularly in order to lose consciousness more efficiently. Beth and I functioned well as a couple. We kept each other amused, and we supported each other's fiction about how our lives were going to turn out. As a couple, we divided up the chores on what we did best, like most couples. I would drive, answer the phone, and pick up takeout food. Beth would listen to Billie Holiday records and try to hang spoons off of her nose. Strangely, I always volunteered to do the laundry. Hmm, I don't know why. I just enjoyed it. It, it, it was perfect for people watching. I would pack sacks of clothes into the car and drive to Doodads, which is about five minutes away, and I'd pull out a roll of quarters and a book and just chill. One such afternoon, I'd loaded a bank of five washers with every scrap of clothing we owned, from whites to delicates. I poured in the cheer, popped in the quarters, heard the satisfying sound of running water, and settled in for a good read when the television program was interrupted by the venerable Mr. Roberts, the ancient weatherman who was a fixture in Urbana since the Revolutionary War. Mr. Roberts was never lighthearted, but this afternoon he was particularly grim. He announced that a severe weather system was heading for the Champaign-Urbana area, and seven tornadoes had touched ground and were converging on the area, and we had 15 minutes to get to a shelter. What? Seven tornadoes? Converging, what, what, what was that thing he said, about 15 minutes? Oh, okay, now I got it. That's why they call this Tornado Alley. They have tornadoes here. Gosh, too bad I hadn't thought about it to this very second. The first thing I did was freeze. My brain stopped working. I looked out of the window, and yeah, yeah, it had gotten very dark outside. The next thing I thought about was of Beth. Did she know? Was she at home? Was she safe? And then I thought about the laundry. Oh, no, it's in the middle of the wash cycle. If I believed what I just heard and committed to it, I would have to take all of that soaking wet, dirty, soapy clothes out of the back, dump them into my car. It would be terribly nasty. It would take up a definite chunk of this 15 minutes we supposedly had to get what? Oh, right, to get to a shelter. What was that? Where was that? I had no idea where to go. Where was the briefing? I should have had a briefing like in the science fiction movie where the captain tells the crew to be careful out there, that this planet occasionally smells like feces, the cold can freeze you solid, and if tornadoes come, head back to the mothership. But there was no briefing. I sat there like a lump for about 15 seconds, and then I screamed to myself inside of my brain, Move it! I looked at the clock. 13 minutes left, and it was a five-minute drive home. I snapped into action, and I ran to the washers, pulling my clothes out by the armful. In reality, I didn't have to worry about getting wet from the clothes because as soon as I walked outside with the first armload, I ran into a thunderstorm. I was drenched. The water poured into the open trunk. That woke me up. I was moving full speed now, running back and forth from doodads to my car, throwing the clothes into the open trunk. I was just finishing when the first hail hit. I jumped into the car when what is scientifically referred to as marble-sized hail pelted the windshield. I headed home as fast as I could. I figured I had, what, eight to ten minutes left tops. 
I could hardly see the road through the rain and the hail, and it dawned on me that there was a chance I would never make it back, that I would never see Beth again, that I would have to rely on the last refuge of the unprepared dumb luck. Then, as suddenly as the rain and hail started, it stopped. I turned down Green Street and I saw Beth's car. She was home. I parked in the dirt driveway. I ran upstairs. Beth was watching Mr. Roberts. Seven tornadoes were five minutes from Champagne. Five minutes. Beth and I looked at each other. In a panic, we ran downstairs and out into the street. The air was becoming strangely warm and thick. Moving above us was a bank of heavy low clouds, and then everything started turning green. I heard the distant roar, like the sound of an approaching train. Hey, like at the station theater! Panic hit us again, and I started running around the house looking for something to hide in. A box, a fallout shelter, an old bumper from a car, anything. We ran back upstairs, and we crawled under the kitchen table. We looked at each other, and Beth said this probably wasn't safe anyway because we were on the second floor. She was probably right. We ran over to the bedroom to check out Mr. Roberts. He was looking as grim as ever, saying that the tornadoes were moving into the city and everybody should be underground. Underground? How do I get underground? We ran outside again. I didn't know what to do, so I decided to crawl under my car. Beth didn't. She leaned down and said, what if the tornado picked me up and the car and carried us both away? Beth was probably right. I crawled out from under the car. And then I remembered something in the back of my mind that in an emergency, you can lie face down in the street next to the curb. And maybe that was for a nuclear blast or maybe I just made it up. I couldn't remember. But this was not the time for indecision. I ran out onto Green Street. I lay face down in the street next to the curb with my hands folded over the back of my neck. Beth didn't. She just bent down and said that it didn't make a lot of sense, that I could still get (laughs) sucked up by the tornado. Plus, now I could also get run over by a car or hit by a falling tree or electrocuted by falling power lines. And Beth was probably right. So I got out of the road. Now I was wet, covered with oil from the street, dirt from hiding under my car, and the all-temperature cheer from the laundry. I looked at Beth. She looked at me. There was a moment. And it wasn't the look of two lovers saying their final farewells, but of two people thinking that they had been running around for a lot longer than five minutes. We ran upstairs. Mr. Roberts reported that champagne was all clear. Because tornadoes gravitate toward higher ground, and because champagne was built on a swamp, the twister circled the city and headed for the nearest high spot in the area, Homer, Illinois. That afternoon... Homer was wiped off the face of the map. I drank a beer and headed back to Doodads to redo my wash. So we were talking about Joseph in Egypt and the meanings of success. 
there was another element of the Bible I found perplexing, and that it seemed to be littered with sudden shifts from one story to another with no warning and seemingly no context. And here's an example, again, from the Joseph story. As you recall, Joseph is stripped of his coat of many colors and thrown into a pit by his jealous brothers where he is to be murdered. One of his brothers argues that he should be spared, and as a compromise, he's sold into slavery. You know you're in a terrible place in your life when being sold into slavery is the good option. Joseph eventually ends up in an Egyptian prison, and here the story gets interesting. Joseph's uncanny ability to read dreams allows him to see the future. This ability first leads to his survival, then to his fame, and eventually his rise in power to become second in command to Pharaoh himself. And now we're going to jump ahead to somewhere in Act 2. Joseph, according to some scholars, is now in his 30s, even though the Bible's not very good at counting. There's a famine that's devastated the world, except for Egypt. Joseph's ESP has saved Egypt and made the Pharaoh very wealthy and powerful. Joseph's brothers back at home are now in a dire situation, and they make the journey to Egypt to survive and to get some food. They come to the palace but they don't recognize Joseph. Joseph does recognize them. And what follows is a series of scenes that are some of the most heartbreaking and dramatic in the Bible. Will Joseph reveal himself? How will he reveal himself? Will he seek revenge? In the end, he can't take it anymore. And he sends all of his servants and guards out of the chamber, and he breaks down into tears. His weeping is described as being so overwhelming that all of Egypt hears. He tells his brother that he is, in fact, Joseph. He hugs them, and then, in an amazing preemptive strike, begs them not to reproach themselves for what they did to him. In fact, he says that their selling him into slavery led the way for him to arrive in Egypt, which enabled him to see the approaching famine and eventually to save their lives. Joseph calls himself the instrument of astonishing deliverance. At this point in the story, we're either swept away by Joseph's largesse, or we feel like he's a little too good to be true, whatever. The reader is often diverted from five little odd verses of legalese that occur shortly afterwards, two chapters to be exact. Joseph changes the property ownership laws of Egypt. In the middle of all this drama, we're hit with this very obtuse nuts and bolts section that basically states in a time of crisis, which could be declared by Pharaoh, Pharaoh owns everything. Personal property and self-determination are eliminated. It's a paragraph that would never find its way into the Lifetime movie version. What was the reason for this strange juxtaposition? Even with the beauty of forgiveness, of brothers, of fathers and sons reuniting, even with the phrase astonishing deliverance still ringing in our ears, it was Joseph who, with the best of intentions, passed the laws that would be used to make Jews slaves for over 200 years. It was Joseph, not Pharaoh. Joseph. And remember, he's the one who had the ESP. So the question is, is this a story about the end of bitterness or the beginning of bitterness? Is Joseph the hero of the story for forgiving his brothers and reuniting his family? Or the villain for creating the legal machinery that would lead to the near annihilation of his people. 
And, and I don't intend for this to be a question for people who just like the Bible. It's a question of simple logic. In this story, was Joseph the architect of the end or the beginning of a chain of events? I say the answer has to be both. And like the braided rope, it's very difficult to untangle the good and the bad we do. Another element of this portion of the Joseph story, what it illustrates for me, and I will admit up front, it is a bit of a stretch. I think the structure of this story demonstrates misdirection. In our lives, we're always watching the right hand, the right hand, the right hand. Here's family, here's tears, here's union. And suddenly the left hand slips in a couple laws and the history of civilization changes. I would offer that misdirection is not a plan gone wrong, but is part of the plan itself. A classic example of misdirection at work is the Battle of Calpins in the Revolutionary War. The American militiamen were so scared and so ill-equipped that their commander feared that they would just run away in the face of the superior British forces. And you know, he was right. I mean, they had done so in the past. So the commander, Daniel Morgan, told his men to fire three shots and you're home free. Meaning, I don't want much. I don't even care if you aim. Just fire the gun three times and then you could run like hell. Now, some of the militia stood, most ran, and eventually they all ran, and the British found this all very amusing and rushed forward attacking the main American forces with abandon. But the escaping militiamen couldn't get across the river to get out of the battle zone, so they kept running. They kept running through the trees along the river trying to find a way out, and they ended up running onto the back of the battlefield behind the British forces. The British felt like they had just fallen into an amazingly clever trap and were surrounded. So they surrendered. This misdirection led to the American victory here and snowballed into the final victory over the British just a few months later. And that thing we call the United States of America was born. Beth and I clearly felt being in Illinois was a misdirection from the start but we were unaware of the real forces working in our lives. The seeds for all of our future successes and heartbreaks were being laid silently every day while we conscientiously blinded ourselves with pizza, pot, beer, and schoolwork. Take Hobbes' visualization class, okay? It was a two-hour class that met every Tuesday and Thursday. On Thursday, we were subjected to a work of art, be it a movie, a symphony, a poem, a play. And then over the weekend, we had to translate that work into another art form and perform it on Tuesday. Sounds cool, huh? Yeah, I know. Looks impressive in the brochure, but it is impossible to do, impossible to grade, and it's absolutely meaningless. In other words, it's the perfect college course. It's meaningless because none of us were going to read King Lear over the weekend and then write a symphony that captured the essence of the play. None of us were going to hear Beethoven's Eroica and then go out and buy a set of oil paints and an easel and translate it into a still life with pears and a curious cat. In reality, we would come up with what generously could be described as bullshit in hopes of misdirecting Hobb into thinking we were wildly creative. Here's some examples of class visualizations. Thursday, we were assigned to read Philoctetes by Sophocles. 
On Tuesday, one of the students' visualization was that he stripped down to a jockey strap and fired arrows into a wall over our heads. Thank you very much. One Thursday, we saw Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and on Tuesday, a class member came wearing an apron and served us hot chocolate with whipped cream and cookies, which we ate and drank while we chatted casually about the play, after which the student who was performing the visualization announced that he had put a vomit-inducing drug in one of our cocos. Yes, and he had. Gary Gennard ended up puking his guts out about an hour later. On one Thursday, we took a field trip to an art museum where we saw Zen paintings of a lone monk on a mountain, smiling with an enormous empty sky above him. And I was supposed to be the first one up on Tuesday with my visualization. I came to class holding a brown paper bag. I told Hob he and the class would have to wait in the coffee area down the hall while I set the room up for my presentation. Everybody left giggling with anticipation over what I was planning. After they rounded the bin, I took off all of my clothes. I set them up in my seat as if my body had vanished. I put my socks in my shoes, my underwear in my jeans. I wrote on a piece of paper, this too will pass. I placed it on a desk with a pencil by my fallen shirt sleeve. Out of my brown paper bag, I pulled out a bathrobe. I put it on and snuck out of the room, and then I went down three flights of stairs to the theater dressing room where I had stashed another set of clothes. I got dressed, and with a sort of smug abandon, I walked home and watched TV. I heard from Beth that the class waited for 20 minutes before Hob got the first twinges that my setup was taking a little long. After 45 minutes, I heard that Hob began fuming and marched the class back to the room. He knocked on the door and yelled that I had been preparing long enough and now I was wasting everybody's time. Then he got no response and he barged into the room and surprise, no one was there. They saw my vanished presence and read, this too will pass. How zen. Okay, that morning I was only trying to punk Hob in the class. And I never realized that in that perfect expression of what I was feeling about Illinois... I had punked myself, and that visualization had not ended in me throwing on more clothes in the dressing room and walking home, but it continued with my escape into another escape, from my wasting my life in school to my wasting my life at home. My visualization only really illustrated my life had become a misdirection, and I had perfected the inability to grasp the importance of time. The next few weeks, I got cast in another big Craner production. I was to play Sparkish, a very funny character in the restoration comedy The Country Wife, where once again I was given the opportunity to appear on stage in a play that no one will be able to understand. Even our director, Clara Beringa, part-time historian and full-time alcoholic, recognized that no one born after 1740 would be able to understand this play. So her technique for rehearsing it was less Stanislavski and more dog whisper. Clara would shout out to us, Enter! Stand! Speak! And whenever there was a line that was supposed to be funny, for example, here's a line from the play I'll quote, Doctor, there are quacks in love as well as in physic. Who get but the fewer and worse patients for their boasting? 
Clara would then ring a little bell, which meant we actors should stop talking and hold. And then she would press a little button on her cassette recorder that she brought with her, and we would hear a tape recording of people laughing. And then at a suitable moment, she pressed the stop button and called out, You may continue. Sometimes, when she was very drunk in rehearsal, she would press the laugh button and then accidentally pass out for a couple of minutes. And we actors would just stand on stage and look at each other, waiting for the huge laugh to end. We should have enjoyed it. It was the most laughter we got ever during the entire run. One of the high points of rehearsal was when we were working on the set and they had not finished the floor yet. Clara entered with her bell and tape recorder and stepped into a hole and vanished. It was a win-win situation. The high amount of intoxication kept Clara loose and safe from injury, and the fall itself seemed to sober her up. We ended up having one of the most constructive rehearsals we ever had. I was costumed in pink and had a long curly blonde wig, and I marveled in the dressing room mirror that at this particular moment in my life, I looked more like a French poodle than I would ever look again. After the run of the play, Hobb ran into Beth and me on our way to acting class. He was in a very jovial mood and walked with us for a bit. He asked how we liked our band, and we both expressed how much fun we were having. Hobb was pleased, and then he dropped that they were still evaluating the master's program in acting as to whether it should be a two- or a three-year program. In that brief walk, without sharing a glance or a word, Beth and I both felt the same thing. We were done with school. I was 25 and losing my hair, and I felt like if I stayed in Illinois until I was 27, I might as well buy a beret and become hob light. Beth was more eager than I ever imagined for something different. She said she was going to write a screenplay, which was bold in that we didn't know any filmmakers. At least with Am I Blue, you're dealing with a short two-person play, easy to see your work realized. A screenplay, there's nothing harder. You needed at least a million dollars and a lot of luck even to get to first base. It seemed to me that the screenplay idea was a misdirection. But then again, I was unable to see the larger events at work beyond my own limited horizon. Almost more than any other time in my past, I can turn and point to this season of misdirection as the braided rope, where every choice I made was an end and a beginning. I had blocked out some time in the dance studio to work out my final project. Blake wanted each student to choreograph and perform their own dance. Not being a dancer, I knew I could never rely on skill. I had to hope for another tornado to destroy the building. But I did come up with a dance, and I, I used the term loosely. I would contrast motion with lack of motion, kind of like my time in Illinois. I would start on the ground in a fetal position. Then I would transition into a horizontal position on the floor, reminiscent of a man watching television. I would slowly rise to my feet and extend my arms to the sky, like the man finishing the final swallow of a rolling rock. Then I would move, like lightning, quickly across the floor in a series of leaps, demonstrating my desire to get out of school. While I was plotting it out, I heard an unexpected voice. It was Blake. Good to see you're working hard she said as she ambled into the studio in preparation for another class. I said, well, hard work is plan B for the ungifted. 
Blake laughed. Well, what's plan A? I said, complete avoidance. She laughed and shook her head. Not necessarily. Hard work means you care. I looked at Blake and was caught off guard by how absolutely pleasant she looked. And I suddenly found myself in the time machine deposited back into the fourth grade. I got nervous and stammered, I don't know, Blake. I think I'm just allergic to failure, so at least I wanted to give this final my best shot. Blake looked off as if she was grasping onto some unexpected memory, and she said, believe me, just spending the time puts you way ahead of the game. And besides, I think you have talent. I liked you in The Country Wife. I blushed. Well, (laughs) thank you. I I did as well as I could, considering I look like a poodle. Blake nodded and said, Hey, I thought that was the point. (laughs) I said, I'm thrilled you saw a point. And I'm glad you like dogs. Blake's entire face lit up. And she said, well, I'll let you finish. Blake walked back into her office. I took a breath and I continued rehearsing with renewed fervor and intensity. Never underestimate the power of an erection. It built the pyramids. I was never so happy that I was wearing a dance belt. Let me be clear. I had never seen Blake as anything other than a teacher, albeit a very attractive teacher, before this moment. I never imagined there being any other life other than one with Beth. Suddenly, in an exchange of a few words, I recognized the world was not comprised of the stable elements I thought it had been. In the blink of an eye, I recognized the possibility of other lives, other loves, other paths, and I was not comforted by the world of multiple choice. On the day of the dance final, I felt like I really did want to be good, not just get by. I wanted to impress Blake. We went through the class one by one. Then it was my turn. I looked to Blake, who was looking like an angel in a royal blue leotard, my favorite. The music started. I tried to embody every move. I really felt it. I came up from the ground like a tree yearning for the sun. I slowly came to life like the world at dawn. And then I exploded into movement like running in between the raindrops and avoiding tornadoes. I never felt so much like a dancer. I felt at one point the ground, and then I felt the space above it. Gravity was my plaything. And I was on my final leap, my final time across the floor, and I extended as I had never done in my life, and I landed on my right foot, and I heard a crack almost like an explosion, and I unexpectedly crumpled to the floor. I I was dazed. I wasn't really hurt, and the first twinges of embarrassment started creeping in. And then I realized I couldn't move. And Blake called out, Stephen, are you all right? And I laughed and said, yeah, yeah, I I, I just thought I could fly for a second. And the class laughed, and I tried to get up again, and I couldn't. And I looked down, and my blood ran cold. The big toe of my right foot was turned backwards, and it was twisted in a horrible way, and it was dangling and was no longer really connected to my foot. It looked like something from a zombie movie. And a flood of adrenaline got me to my feet, and I started hopping to the men's dressing room with Blake yelling after me, Stephen, Stephen, are you all right? And I yelled back, no, not really, but please go away. I got to the men's bathroom, and I put my foot into the sink, and I started running cold water on my toe. 
it was totally numb. It was starting to swell and turn black. And then the bathroom door blasted open behind me. It was Blake. I tried to cover my toe with my hands, and she rushed to the sink and pulled my hands away, and she saw my foot. She never said a word. Without a moment's hesitation, Blake lifted me up in her arms and turned and kicked the bathroom door open. That five-foot-five-inch girl ran with all six-foot-three inches of me down the hallways of the Cranard Center, out through the side door, out into the parking lot. Without stopping, she carried me through rows of parked cars to her VW Bug. She carefully put me in the front seat, and then she floored it to the hospital. I said, I had no idea you were that strong. And she looked over at me, and with only a slight trace of a smile, she said, I'm a dancer. I work hard. Blake got me to the emergency room and sat with me for two hours. She kept me good company. She talked to doctors and nurses to get them to hurry up and help me. She was my advocate. She apologized that she had to get back and give another final, and I told her that was fine. They sent me to x-ray. My big toe was broken in four places, and it was dislocated. They set my toe and accidentally wrapped me in two full leg casts. Eventually, I got a hold of Beth. Remember, cell phones were the stuff of science fiction in 1976. She came by to pick me up. She saw the gigantic cast on my foot and said that I'd look like Fred Flintstone. I got home that evening and I went to bed. Around 8 p.m., there was a knock at my bedroom door. It was Blake Atherton with a container of soup. She sat at the edge of my bed and asked if I was all right. I nodded and thanked her. She said it was her last day of teaching and she was leaving campus the next morning. And she said she guessed she would see me again next year. And I told her I doubted it, that I thought Beth and I were going to leave. Actors need a master's degree about as much as professional bass fishermen. She looked at me and without saying, have a nice life, said it with a smile. It was a silent moment of misdirection. I did see Blake again in 2002. (laughs) I was on Broadway doing mornings at 7. Blake drove three and a half hours from upstate New York to see me in the show and to meet me afterwards. She could only stay a minute or so because she had to make the long drive back home. But I did get the chance to thank her again for that afternoon 27 years ago. I've mentioned in these podcasts that Harold Ramis told me during Groundhog's Day that it's impossible to succeed without the help of at least four angels. I've already mentioned two in these stories, Alan Parker during Mississippi Burning and Jack Clay, my professor who stood up for me in college. My third angel is Blake Atherton. Once upon a time in an empty dance studio, I had a moment where I saw her as a romantic figure, but I was mistaken. She was a heroic figure who taught me through a chance moment of misdirection that one should never underestimate the power of kindness.
That was The Season of Misdirection, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Dobolowski. Stephen, why don't you tell people how they can reach you this week over the internets? Uh, yeah, over the internets and the inter- internet system, uh, you could reach me at stephentobolowski at gmail.com, and that's S T E P H E N. T is in Tom, O, B is in boy, O, L, O, W, S, K, Y. And also you can reach me at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. Excellent. And you can also find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. You can also email me at slash filmcast at gmail.com. A couple of other things we like to point out. If you'd like to find more of Stephen's stories, you can purchase Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. Stephen, why don't you tell people where they can find that? Uh, you could find it several places. Uh, Amazon.com has it. And you can go to our website, st- like Stephen Tobolowsky Birthday Party, stbpmovie.com. And uh, if you go to STBP Movie, you can request that uh, I sign it for you because uh, they'll send me the movies to sign. There you go. And uh, you can also find emails written by you. Uh, the listeners of the Tobolowski Files, by going to tobolowski.tumblr.com. That's tobolowski.tumblr.com. Uh, listeners to this show share all kinds of really fascinating, profound stories and experiences of the Tobolowski Files, and uh, you can find them at that site uh, and read each other's stories and kind of just partake in the communal experience that is Tobolowski. And, so, and also, and also mentioned that it's good to, if you know to write a review if you wish on iTunes. That's that's great too. That helps us a great deal. It helps us so much if you could write a review on iTunes. Uh, just go to iTunes, search for Tobolowski Files. It'll be there. And if you write for a newspaper or a blog or something, you want to write a, a, a review of the Tobolowski Files there. Uh, definitely let us know, and uh, definitely let us know when it happens, and uh, maybe we can help you out somehow. But in any case, uh, any publicity for this show is greatly appreciated. Oh, David, yeah. David, let me mention this because you don't know this, but uh, I just got an email this morning that uh, when this show airs, the NPR station in Champaign-Urbana has heard about the Tobolowsky files and these Illinois stories, and I'm going to be doing an interview on NPR in the Illinois area uh, this week. So if you're there, be listening in. Awesome. Do you know what the station is? Uh, I think it's W-I-L-L. There you Just, go. I, I don't have it right in front of me, but I believe it is. Uh, NPR in Champaign-Urbana. Very cool, sir. Uh, that is awesome. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, Stevens, uh, you, you, are, you are very willing to do interviews, as I've found, uh, which is kind of what made this podcast possible in the first place. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. In any case, uh, again, thanks for tuning into the Tobolowski Files, and uh, feel free to email us. Let us know what you think of the show at either of our addresses, and tune in next week. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. Bye bye. <laughs>